Hi, everyone, and welcome to Clinical Realities, a podcast mini-series from The Lancet Rheumatology, where we explore the realities of rheumatology care and research in challenging settings and amongst underserved and neglected patient populations across the globe. My name is Pooja Mehta. I'm a rheumatology trainee currently undertaking research in interstitial lung disease at UCL in London in the UK. And in this episode of Clinical Realities, we'll explore the importance and challenges of obstetric medicine. And it's an absolute pleasure to be joined by two guests who have a lot of experience in this space, both experts in the field. And I'd like to ask them to introduce themselves, Professor Kathleen Nelson Piercy and Dr. Lisa Marie Neum. Thank you, Pooja. Uh, my name is Cathy nelson Piercy. I'm an obstetric physician. I've been a consultant for over 25 years. I work at Guy's and St Thomas's Hospital in London, and I'm the lead obstetric physician for the South East London Maternal Medicine Network. Thank you for joining us. Lisa Marie. Um, I'm Lisa Marie Vian. I'm an obstetric physician for five years. <laughs> I have recently moved to London, but what I actually did in South Africa, I'm a general physician with a special interest in obstetric medicine, where I worked in Pretoria at our two academic hospitals. I've recently moved to London to join the South East London Network, where I will be working at King's, Denmark Hill and Prue Hospital. Excellent. So I'm super excited to get started in, and get cracking into this subject. But what exactly does it mean? What is obstetric medicine and why, as rheumatologists, should we be aware of this? Why is it relevant to rheumatology? Cathy, perhaps we could start with you. Thank you. So the first thing to say is Lisa and I are not obstetricians. We are physicians. So a lot of people hear the word obstetric medicine and assume that we deliver babies. We do not. We're, we're trained we're in general medicine. Uh, I was actually originally training in diabetes and endocrinology. And obstetric medicine is the care of women who are pregnant or who wish to be pregnant or who've just been pregnant with chronic or acute medical problems. So we are like general physicians to the pregnant patient. Excellent. And Lisa Marie, would you add anything to that? Yeah, that's exactly how I explain it. Saying it's, it's the planning of a pregnancy, it's the during the pregnancy and it's the after follow-up. And it's women who either are known with medical conditions or suddenly become sick during pregnancy um, and require a physician who's not scared to take care of them. Excellent. Yes. And I do know the fear of being a medical registrar when you're called to the to the maternal medicine and the, the obstetric ward. So let's try and dissipate <laughs> that fear. So why is this relevant to rheumatology? And let's talk about men as well as women. Cathy, could you could you start us off? So it's relevant to rheumatology because many rheumatological conditions affect women of childbearing age. So I have for many years run an obstetric rheumatology clinic and the vast majority of my patients will have lupus, antiphospholipid syndrome, rheumatoid arthritis or uh, spondyloarthritis. And as a rheumatologist, you will know that these conditions affect women of childbearing age and men uh, of childbearing age. Men are relevant because men are on the same disease modifying drugs as women. And a lot of misinformation is out there for drugs in pregnancy and breastfeeding in general. But particularly, two examples relevant to rheumatology would be methotrexate and mycophenolate mofetil, both of which are teratogenic, contraindicated in pregnancy. But it is not the case that men taking methotrexate to control their rheumatoid arthritis for example, need to stop that drug before a pregnancy is conceived. Ditto um, MMF. It's also relevant to men because men should take responsibility for contraception in equal measure to women. And it is very important that women of childbearing age with rheumatological conditions 
do plan their pregnancy and don't have unplanned pregnancies. And men without rheumatological conditions should share that responsibility, in my view. Absolutely. Yes, agree. And Lisa Marie, do you also see patients who have rheumatological conditions during their pregnancies? Yes, I think two of the scariest groups of patients to look after are the rheumatological diseases and the nephrology patients, because they're on all these complex drugs that most of us are scared of just as physicians, and now they're pregnant on top of that, and physicians are generally scared of pregnancy. Um, So I really think we need to spread the word of the importance of obstetric medicine in rheumatology uh, in those populations of patients. So something that you both touched upon um, in terms of the the widespread uh, relevance to rheumatology is in contraception, which a lot of rheumatologists shy away from. They think that's not me, Gov, it's not my terra firma. And therefore, do you think that we should actually be getting involved in this area, but also in preconception counselling? What do you think we're doing right now and how can we do it better? Perhaps, Cathy, we could start with you. So I think what you've established in rheumatology is uh, transition clinics in some hospitals, and that is the place to begin the discussion about reproductive health and health and family planning and contraception. But that does not catch everyone. And as Lisa has said, it's not just rheumatologists, but we're I don't wish to be disparaging, but physicians in general, they became physicians, so they didn't have to discuss vaginal bleeding, sex, contraception. These are unpalatable (laughs) conversations, and and therefore they shy away from them and think that it's the GP's role or someone else's job. But women with inflammatory arthritis and systemic lupus are under the care of rheumatologists. Therefore, it's my belief that non-alienating pre-pregnancy counselling should be opportunistically offered in Mm. every rheumatology clinic. Don't wait for the woman to say, I'm planning a pregnancy, what should I do? Because 50% of pregnancies in this country, in the UK, are unplanned. I've no idea what the figure is in South Africa. But if you assume that the woman is not going to mention it until she plans pregnancy, then you will miss, by definition, 50% of all your patients who who will become pregnant without the desired counselling. So please volunteer, offer, offer contraceptive advice and pre-pregnancy advice to all all your patients of childbearing age. Um, So Lisa Marie, how can we encourage rheumatologists to be more proactive and more comfortable in talking about uncomfortable topics, as Cathy mentioned? (laughs) It really is uncomfortable. I think we need to we need to acknowledge all women of childbearing age are pregnant until proven otherwise. If we start seeing them as that, that, that changes our perspective. So to every time that we see them, is just to speak to them about what are your plans with pregnancy? Have you planned it? Have you thought about it? And I think mostly these women say, no, 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 I've never thought about it. But in reality, it can happen at any point, whether they planned it or they hadn't planned it. I think a rheumatologist and a general physician sees a patient a lot more than a gynecologist sees them. Often women don't go to obstetricians or gynecologists until they're pregnant. And if we leave it for them to do the pre-pregnancy counselling, it's not going to happen. So it's breaking down that barrier of my patient can't get pregnant and and actually making it part of the daily conversation. So, so important. And I've often heard Cathy say that language is so important and words, just as, as you were mentioning, Lisa Marie, mm. the sort of you should not get pregnant rather than you cannot get pregnant cannot. on yes. methotrexate, for example. So such important um, message to hit home. Cathy, you introduce yourself very modestly <laughs> and I'm going to to break that apart and and tell everybody that 
that you really have been a pioneer creating this specialty in obstetric medicine and you're a global symbol of OBS Med. How did this all start? Was there a vision? Was there a plan at the beginning? Did you have this mapped out and you sort of sat there thinking, this is what I want to achieve in the next five years, 10 years or so on? Or was it more organic? Absolutely not. I, I did not have it map out, mapped out. I First of all, I didn't dream up this concept. It was dreamed up by the my mentor and the person who taught me, Professor Michael DeSweet. And I was very lucky when I was a diabetes registrar to do the diabetes in clinic, uh, diabetes in pregnancy clinic with Michael. But he would keep disappearing into rooms. And I say, where are you going? He said, well, I'm just going to see this lady with mitral stenosis who's pregnant. I went, oh, that sounds interesting. Uh, I was very, very fortunate in that when I decided I'd like to do this, flexible training was invented. And I was actually the first flexible trainee in London. And in those days, flexible trainees could write their own training program. So I effectively created my own training program in obstetric medicine. I decided to go to the lupus clinic at St. Thomas's because I heard they had a lupus in pregnancy clinic. I went to an asthma clinic at the Homerton. I basically went round and hunted out any joint clinic. I already was obviously doing diabetes and pregnancy. And then I caught the bug, I like to call it. And I can see as trainees come through, they either catch the bug or they don't catch the bug. If they catch the bug, then they become as passionate as I am and they and they decide this is what I want to do and the obstacles that those behind me have had to jump are not dissimilar to the ones I had to jump you're basically going into a field that doesn't exist or didn't exist I should correct myself so no Pooja I did not uh, lay down a plan that I wanted to conquer the world and persuade everyone that they needed obstetric medicine 25 years ago. I thought it was self-evident. I thought, well, what's the problem? I'll become a consultant and two years later, it will be a recognised specialty. Well, 25 years later, it just about is, but that's how long it's taken. Gosh, well, I, it didn't start off with a plan, but you certainly achieved it. Um, what have been the best bits that you're most proud of? And I'm hoping that may have been some of the rheumatologists that you've converted along the way. <laughs> <laughs> I would say there are two best bits. I, I can't label one, but in if I think about what gets me up in the morning, it's two things. It's the women, the patients, the making a difference to their life, allowing them to have pregnancies if they were told they couldn't, taking them through a pregnancy, giving them a live healthy baby. And it is seeing what happens to the trainees when they sit in the clinic for the first time and they are converted. It's like watching some sort of baptism. It, it's absolutely extraordinary and immensely satisfying. And now I'm in a position where all of these people I trained are now consultants. Uh, and that is just so satisfying. I am proud of, of what I've achieved in terms of the specialty, but I'm far more proud of those that I've trained because they are the future. And yes, there are many rheumatologists of all the, the 17 consultant obstetric physicians now, and three, if not four of them started life as a rheumatologist and then saw the light and have, <laughs> have decided to concentrate on obstetric medicine. But even those that didn't, they've become passionate, passionate in obstetric rheumatology, which is evolving as a specialty, a little subspecialty all of its own. So interesting. Um, and I'm sure there have been challenges as well. I mean, I've had the pleasure 
of spending time with you and have witnessed this. And it feels sometimes you do have to go into battle and it's a little bit tricky with certain personalities and people that are a little bit obstructive. There's bureaucracy. How would you describe the challenges, the barriers and how have you overcome them? It's much easier now that I'm older and wiser, but growing up, trying to carve out this specialty, trying to persuade people who didn't want to be persuaded, you have to be very resilient, you have to have very tough skin, and you have to be persistent. Uh, just because they're objecting doesn't mean to say they're right. And I am quite bossy and, and quite persistent. The obstruction, the resistance comes from some specialist physicians, although I have to say very few rheumatologists. And the obstetricians, because you are involving yourself in their patients. These patients have the obstetric consultant's name on them. And yet we advise, we help, we collaborate. You have to work in teams. You can't ever assume that you can do this by yourself. Lisa would agree that if you can't get on with people, particularly get on with obstetricians, this, this career is not for you. You bond with these people over the patient. You manage, it only takes one tricky case and then you've made a best friend because you've each respect each other. It's sad that it has to be like that with some people and I won't claim to have converted the world at all, but that's how you do it. You show your worth and you do that with patient care. That's such an important lesson that we can all take forward. Lisa Marie, are you a convert? <laughs> you a former I, I really baptized. want to say thank you. <laughs> thank you to Cathy for saying that, because I think for us young consultants, we are going through what she went through 25 years ago. It's in, uh, encouraging to hear the, the battles that she went through are the same ones that we go through. And I don't really want to call them battles because then now it sounds like I'm fighting with obstetricians. But it's identifying the role of the obstetric physician in, in units that you work in. And like Cathy says, they've got their names attached to the patients and we stick our fingers in there. Um, but I do think it's only to the benefit of the patient or the intention is for the benefit of the patient. I think to all, all other young obstetric physician consultants, um, whether we're the rheumatologists or, or whatever they are, to, to hear what Cathy went through when she started this whole specialty. Yeah. Thank you. And could you tell us about your journey? So the experiences that you've had in the UK, as well as South Africa, how would you compare the different settings and what were the differences in practice, as well as challenges to, to develop obstetric medicine in an elmic? Could you yeah. please speak to that? Right. Okay, that's a lot of questions all in one. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's go start, for it. With, start with how it started and then um, what the experience was. Um, so I was a trainee registrar and, and also started in a diabetic, obstetric diabetic clinic with a diabetologist back in California Hospital. And I actually didn't enjoy it at all. <laughs> I worked in this clinic and I had to see all these gestational diabetics and I felt that you're not really badly controlled. I don't understand the point of this. And then once or twice I saw the really sick woman and I saw how sick they get and I saw how quickly they get better. And in the same way that Kathy says where um, Prof. Michael the Sweet would go see different patients, this was also a link for our obstetricians to speak to a physician face-to-face. -face. And so they would bring their complex cases to this clinic. And I started realizing that these are wonderful patients because they're young and so they've got that physiological reserve. They get really sick really quickly and then they get better. And so I Googled it and I saw these people like Kathy in this world. <laughs> <laughs> I saw in, in the UK, there is someone called Prof. Nelson Piercy. 
And then I was very fortunate to meet Kathy at a conference um, in Cape Town, actually. And she then offered that I come through for training. And so in 2018, I came through for six months of training um, and definitely became a convert then <laughs> um, and went back home and, and um, continued to do it there. The challenges, um, that was the first time that, that a physician said, I want to work with the obstetricians. So mostly I was welcomed um, because I think, especially in our um, low-income country, or, well, South Africa is really a middle-income country, but our women get very sick. Our numbers, our, our maternal deaths reflect that, um, if I can mention it, our unit just at Califong Hospital had 26 maternal deaths last year. And I've got, if I compare that to Kings or to Prue, they didn't have one last year. Um, so our severity of disease is so much worse. And so the, the units were quite grateful to have direct contact with the physician. But still, again, obstetricians are trained doctors that are they're very good with looking after sick pregnant women and suddenly someone comes and wants to mix mix with their plans so it, it was challenging in that way as well but very exciting and so they already had clinics in place maternal medicine clinics and I joined those and I joined their high care rounds and and we saw some terribly sick patients or some terribly interesting patients um, in these clinics and, and ward rounds I think acute medicine was a lot more there than it is here uh, because our women seek help so much later, um, they have unplanned pregnancies, they have undiagnosed disease. There's a lot of undiagnosed disease. We, we pick up Takayasu's 30 weeks into pregnancy. We pick up lupus quite often when they look like they've got a preeclampsia flare. Um, so they, they never knew they had these diseases. They felt a bit uncomfortable, but they thought they'd just you know, get on with life. And then they're pregnant and they complicate and they come into a, a, a tertiary centre and suddenly we realise that there's a serious disease going on here. So that's very rewarding um, to work in a, in a setup like that. And I like your story of meeting Kathy for the first time by an email. I'll share mine, which is slightly less socially acceptable. And Kathy probably doesn't remember this. But after you gave a lecture, I cornered you in the toilet and said, <laughs> I really want to come and sit in your class. To that, <laughs> but um, we need to do what we do. So what I'm hearing is is that there are lots of different phases and points for intervention in terms of talking about this in a rheumatology clinic with respect to contraception, sex, preconception counselling, the drugs, the effects of drugs on fertility, as well as in the um, uh, antenatal phase and postpartum flares. So throughout the entire life cycle in all of our clinics, we could be talking about this all the time. How do you think, practical points, how do you think we can really improve the care of, uh, of women as well as men um, in this setting? In locally as well as nationally, what can we do better? Kathy, perhaps we could start with you. How can rheumatologists do better? We have to embed obstetric rheumatology into the training of rheumatologists. That's probably the most important thing. When rheumatologists send me women for pre-pregnancy counselling, I know that they know the answer. What they lack is the confidence to counsel the patient. You absolutely have to continue this biologic because if you don't, your ankylosing spondylitis has a 50% chance of flaring and steroids aren't going to work and you can't use non-steroidals after 32 weeks. Therefore, my strong advice is to continue your etanercept, which actually doesn't get across the placenta very well anyway. That's just mm -hmm. one example, but it's a very, very typical because I only look after pregnant women, I only do pre-pregnancy counselling, I that data 
rolls off my off my tongue. I'm very aware of it. And therefore, I sound very confident. And therefore, the woman hears this drug safe. Whereas the rheumatologist has got a full clinic of rheumatology patients, half of which are men. And in my experience, they know the stuff. It's not a knowledge gap. It's a confidence gap. So if it is embedded in their training and that they witness their consultants giving, offering pre-pregnancy counselling and making these management decisions together with, with the patients, then they will grow up to be consultants who share that confidence. So I think it's only a matter of time. I am the eternal optimist. And I think if we can up the the profile within training and make it a total instead of a tick box mm. i've attended an obstetric rheumatology clinic we actually make it a capability in practice for rheumatologists for their exit exam i can deliver pre-pregnancy counseling for a woman with sjogren's or lupus or whatever that makes a lot of sense. It needs to be a competence that we all should be able to achieve and be confident in. And I think that the confidence issue really is key. So a little flicker of an eyebrow that shows that you're not sure if a drug could be continued in pregnancy will transfer to that patient who is vulnerable and already scared about taking any drugs during pregnancy. And so we need to be able to deliver messages competently and confidently. Lisa Marie, would you add anything else to that? How can rheumatologists do better? So, Cathy just touched on something there about the, the exit exam. And I think putting it in, in a prerequisite for the exit, exit exam is a good place because then we really have to, you have to know it. At some point, you have to go and study it. You have to become confident in it. And it, it's something that you have to work for. It's not just something that you experience every now and then in a clinic. Yeah, you actually have to go study it. So I think it's important to have it in there, especially in our low-income countries as well, or um, low- and middle-income countries, that it's not just something that we talk about, but it's actually an outcome that has to be met. And then awareness. I, I, you know, there's one part about GPs being aware and, and, and general physicians, but rheumatologists... Yeah, need to speak to their patients all the time about what are your plans and how are you experiencing this. Mm. So true. We need to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Um, yeah, but what yes. about pharma and research? Because mm. we've touched a little bit upon, on drugs, so biosimilars, JAK inhibitors. There's such little data. So how can we speak confidently if there is such little data? How can we get more data? Cathy, perhaps we could start with you. Well, the first thing I want to say is the fact that there are little data does not mean to say you shouldn't use that drug. It's, you know, it's so important. I'm forever recommending or prescribing drugs for which there is virtually no data. That's my job. Our role is to share what information there is with the woman and help her make an informed decision. You can't, I mean, I'm slightly glossing over our, our consultation techniques. We don't sit there saying, don't worry, this drug is safe. We back it up with such evidence as there is, or the fact that she's on belimumab and there are only three or four studies, each of 60 patients, very poor amounts of data, but no safety signals, no biological plausibility whereby this drug would be harmful. And so you have to keep abreast of the literature in lots of different areas, but you have to be honest with the patient and say, OK, there's not much data, but you're on belimumab. It's revolutionised your lupus. If you come off it, then the lupus has a very high chance of flaring and steroids are, are not the answer, as, as all of the rheumatologists listening know. But I'm slightly not answering your question. Pharma are very variable 
and there is a new uh, policy document called Healthy Mum, Healthy Baby, Healthy Future, led by Birmingham Clinical Trials Unit, um, Birmingham University, as a call to arms for pharma, for researchers. It should be the default that pregnant women are included in drug trials, not the default that they are excluded. And we've got this far into the podcast, Pooja, and no one said the word COVID, so I'm going to say it now. COVID, <laughs> COVID actually has a positive impact in terms of the realisation that if you want pregnant women to have a COVID vaccine, then you have to recruit pregnant women into the vaccine trials. And it's the same. If you want to be able to treat women with rheumatoid arthritis of childbearing age, then you must include pregnant women with rheumatoid arthritis in the drug trials, not just say, oh, if you go, if you become pregnant, you're excluded from this trial. It's, it's worse than not including them. They're then actively excluded. So you lose all the data that, that you have. So there are, as you know, I'm not sure if we're allowed to mention companies, but as you know, Pooja, there are some pharma that are very, very good at this and others that are dragging their feet because it all seems a little bit too difficult. But it's not just pharma. It's also the insurers for drug trials. Thank you. Absolutely. 100% agree with everything that you've said. Lisa, Marie, do you want to add anything to that? I think the only thing I want to add is, um, like Kathy mentioned earlier, 50% of pregnancies are unplanned. So hopefully rheumatologists help their patients to plan their pregnancies a lot more. But in reality, there are going to be women who are on drugs, who didn't plan a pregnancy and find out halfway through or 12 weeks in or so. And the importance of reporting those women, because we need those women to put together to say, we didn't plan this pregnancy, but it happened and she was safe. It worked out well. Um, and, and then we put that together and, and make a statement that it, the drug is relatively safe in pregnancy. Such a good point. We need to report positive outcomes because how mm. to accrue the data. So I thought I would end on um, perhaps the vision for the future and also some advice. And Cathy, we've talked about you being a pioneer, this inspiring or inspiring figure of a dream and a passion and actualizing that dream. And we could all, I'm sure Lisa Marie and I, would both be interested in, in your advice in terms of how can you follow your passion and make your dreams come true? Well, it's now easier. So obstetric medicine is now recognised. The RCP now offer a credential in obstetric medicine for pre-CCT trainees in any specialty. And what will happen, sadly, as a result of the Ockenden report, that the need to make obstetric medicine sustainable means training more people and that means funding places increasing the number of training centers so for those my advice has changed Pooja so I used to say choose acute medicine and you can do a special skills model in a module in obstetric medicine but I'm now you know very very soon we are on the point of saying train in rheumatology and Go get a credential in obstetric medicine by joining one of the increasing numbers of training centres. We're not quite there, so it depends if I'm advising an ST12345, but we we will get there. We will increase the number of, of training places, of trainers. So we need to train the consultants before we can uh, train the trainees, if you see what I mean. But we are getting there. Obstetric medicine is recognised now. It's not a, a, a freestanding specialty, but follow follow your dream, follow your passion and don't be afraid to take time out to get the training that this needs. This is not something you learn by sitting in a clinic 
one, two, three, four times. You have to be embedded in the service. Lisa, I'm sure would agree. It's very different when you're doing it Mm. from watching it. And if you actually have to do it, that's how you learn, as we know in all branches of medicine. Absolutely. And what about the rest of the world? So you have created this hub and spoke. So people like Lisa Marie and others have come flocked to you from around the world like a magnet. But (laughs) there's only one of you. And how can we make sure that this is going to spread all the way throughout the world? What is happening right now? And what are your plans for the future? Yes, so we now have maternal medicine networks that we've alluded to. They are uh, specially commissioned, so it's not negotiable. Every woman in England, uh, when she becomes pregnant, will be part of it, will have access to a maternal medicine network. And as part of the network delivery, we have to provide education. So the training should be accessible. And not all those consultants will will stay in England. They will. This is already a specialty in Canada, in the US, in Australia, in New Zealand. Lisa, I think you're the first in South Africa, but Lisa will. Somewhat, but. uh... (laughs) Lisa Lisa will go back and she will trailblaze and this will become a specialty in South Africa. Yeah, definitely. That's what we're hoping for. Um, There's actually, I I should mention, there's a woman who's a dual trained obstetrician and physician originally from the UK who just fell in love with with Cape Town and um, Rosie Burton. And so she's really the first um, obstetric physician in South Africa. But yes, we've, we've got a, a growing society back home in South Africa with over 100 members. So we're definitely spreading awareness. It's definitely growing back there. And I think our country has really become aware of, of the importance of it. Um, it's even written in our maternal death reports, um, the importance of, of creating obstetric physicians. So slowly, steadily, we, we're training, we're writing training programs, we're creating awareness and, and through our eight universities in our country, we will slowly start training people to become obstetric physicians and also stressing the importance of pregnancy in rheumatology, in nephrology and, and other subspecialties also. Yeah. And then hopefully the rest of Africa will catch on. And we, we do have some African um, delegates that have joined our society also. So watch the space, 20 years maybe, <laughs> Africa will have obstetric physicians. <laughs> Amazing. And is it potentially easier to create change where you are because there's less bureaucracy and barriers? I'm hoping that is the case. But I, I'm glad you asked that. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think I, I really do think so. Um, we're smaller teams. There's less of us um, and there's a lot of work. I think it's it's different. We're, I mean, I've worked in Steve Biko and, and California Hospital, which is our academic hospitals in Pretoria for over 10 years. So I know the network. And, and so it's easier to grow a network there, but it's much smaller than it is in large academic hospitals in the UK. And, and people are more keen for help. So, yes, I do think it is a little easier. Then uh, the flip side is we don't have so many resources. So starting something up or, or driving something needs money and we don't have the money for that. So um, it's, it's both sides. Yeah, definitely less bureaucracy, much less. <laughs> Incredible. Gosh, um, I could talk to you all day, I'm sure. And I think people could listen to you all day, but we have to come to an end at some point. And I just wanted to say a huge thank you to both of you. You're such inspiring women doing such great work. And hopefully that will trickle and ripple to lots of other rheumatologists as well as other physicians to improve the care for, for more patients. 
And again, just thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Loved it. <laughs> Thanks <laughs> thank for inviting you. us. <laughs>